Let's remain standing for a prayer. We do thank you, Father, for your word. We've sung much about it in this service. And we ask, Father, that we, as we come to it now, may put ourselves under its truth, that we might not only be hearers of it, but doers, obedient day by day. And in your word of truth, by your Spirit's power, may go out to live this, work, this week to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, it's always a, a joy in my itinerant minister to come home, which I always think this is. Nice to be home again. The only one thing about coming home, when you're an itinerant preacher, you, can, you go around the country and you sort of... Uh, you choose what you're going to preach from normally so that makes life fairly straightforward when you come back home you have to fit into a series I'm more than happy so to do uh, so when Paul mentioned I should preach from these psalms I, did, I went back to my old notes of some, these psalms and I discovered in this church I preached from Psalm 62 under the title of All My Hope I preached on Psalm 63 under the title of All My Love and we got to Harvest Festival and I preached on Psalm 65 and all my joy. Psalm 64, blank. Not a thing. Not a note. So uh, Paul has driven me back to the scriptures, back to my commentaries, back to basics. I'm grateful. And I've worked at Psalm 64. Whether or not the work will uh, prove beneficial, you'll decide in about 25 minutes time but if I were to get this in my old series all my hope all my love all my joy this would be all my strength and like a lot of the psalms particularly this series of psalms you've been looking at you come into the experience of David we can't tell exactly when it was after all David had lots of enemies and there were lots of times he was running away from his enemies so it might have been any time they were real his enemies sometimes it's hard for us to put ourselves exactly there. I hope you don't have lots of enemies. I, don't, I hope you're not running away from them at the moment. But I will suggest to you that uh, there are many relevant messages here. Please notice, and it's interesting to me, uh, there's a rather anticlimactic beginning in the little note under Psalm 64 for the director of music. Doesn't that bring it down to earth? This is a psalm for George Parsons, I've told him that. It's his psalm for the director of music. And the idea behind it was that all this experience that David had was meant to be continued so that they would sing about it. It wasn't just his story, it was the story of God in his life so that we may benefit from singing it. Well, we don't sing psalms quite the same way these days. Uh, the other week I was confronted, I was taking a funeral and I, I hadn't looked at the order of service properly. We were supposed to be singing Psalm 23 to the inevitable tune of Crimond, which is a constant at a funeral service, and a very small congregation. And I suddenly realized, I started, they'd actually printed the psalm to the, to the Psalter version and I had to chant it and the thought of me chanting the psalm in front of all these people who I guess wouldn't have even begun to start chanting it was a bit of a panic anyway eventually we produced Crimmond out of a hat somewhere and sang it that version but whichever version you use the psalms have a lot to say but not just psalms I've chosen the final hymn Amazing Grace because that comes out of a deep experience and very relevant to our 200th anniversary of the abolition of slavery. Uh, John Newton, the great slave trader, was gloriously converted. And while maybe it's right to apologize and, and be penitent for the slave trade, 
I find it very easy to be penitent for things I have no responsibility for. My own sins are the problem, but never mind whether we uh, are being penitent. We certainly rejoice that there was a slave trader gloriously converted, and he's given us the chance to sing about it, as in many hymns. We sometimes sing here that lovely hymn, When peace like a river attendeth my wages well with my soul, written by a man whose whole family uh, died at sea and yet he could sing it is well with my soul. So you can enter into it and we shall do that as we go through this psalm. Please notice when it begins, it begins with a very realistic word, I voice my complaint. Now complaint is not grumbling. It is never a, a virtue to grumble. And some Christians are as bad as the world in grumbling. And one of the simplest uh, truths about a new week is if we go about this week without being grumblers, we shall do something for the gospel. But the complaint is not that. The word complaint is a much bigger word. It's actually saying, I've got troubled thoughts. I am deeply concerned. Please, Lord, listen to me. I'm told by uh, commentators, uh, you will know if you know me at all, that I'm not a Hebrew scholar which is shorthand for saying I don't know any Hebrew, but it sounds better to say I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But uh, the word complaint, I'm told by the commentators, is the same Hebrew word that you find, for example, in Psalm 104, where it talks about my meditation. That sounds a much better word. But the whole idea of the word is that I am being honest, I'm telling God how I feel, that's all. Now, it's always important we don't talk about God we talk to God. Don't complain about him. Complain to him. And the best illustration is on the cross. Jesus, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? Which me leads me to say, whatever you make about this psalm, and I hope at the end you'll have made something with it, please remember the greatest moment in all history of enemies getting their own back was when Jesus, stand, dying on a cross, had people, religious leaders who just said their prayers, walking past him saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. If he's a son of God, let him come down from the cross. What enemies? And that was the greatest sign of hatred you'll find in Scripture. And marvelously and wonderfully, because there on the cross, it wasn't just the taunts of his enemies that put him there. It was it's the wrath of God being satisfied on him so that you and I might live. He bore our sins. That's the fulfillment. And therefore, way beyond what David could ever fully know, we should be able to bring our complaints to him. And the intriguing thing is that in ten verses, it changes from complaint to rejoicing. And again, my Hebrew uh, commentators tell me, that the word rejoice in verse 10 is a word play in Hebrew. They do that quite often in the Psalms. A word play on the same word here in verse 1 is rejoice in verse 2. It's a play on words. So we begin by asking God to hear and we end by God asking us to rejoice. So how did it go? Well, first of all, the first six verses, what I call conflict expected. You will not remember, but I remember very vividly, my last time I preached in this pulpit, I was given a little series on Exodus, and I was asked to preach about the plagues and all the conflict, and so I reminded you then that we're living in a world of conflict. Now, I've not chosen Psalm 64, but I'm very glad to remind you again 
that conflicts on. If I, sometimes I'm asked, because I do travel around the country now, preaching here, there and everywhere, what my views of this, that and the other. One of my deepest concerns, and it's true particularly of churches where things are happening, is that we like to live in a fool's paradise. We like to believe that we can all be nice, quiet, gentle Christians and the world will go our way. We don't like confrontation. Please, Lord, at all costs, no confrontation. There is no future for that kind of Christianity in our land. It's dead. The silent majority really have nothing to offer. And the challenge to the church is, will I, dare I, stand up and be counted? Because the opposition is strong, and I ask 2 Corinthians 11 to be read because it reminds us that sometimes the opposition comes in religious guise. And if you think that's just me, or just Paul, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets. They dress up in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We will not listen. We are living in a world of confrontation and it's getting stronger. So as I went through this psalm, I felt very much in the spirit of it. You see, it starts, for example, conflict in my mind, first of all. That's verse 1b. Protect my life from the threat of the enemy. And the word threat really means dread. Your mind paralysed by dread. Do you sometimes come back from watching the news on telly? Or reading your newspaper over breakfast and you, your mind is just troubled. Is there any, any hope, any joy, any light, any peace? Well, of course there is. It isn't all gloom. But on the other hand, the mind gets troubled. Is there going to be any answer? Are there any who stand for the things that we believe to be true? Will anybody dare to be different? Well, that's why the Bible insists that I need to let God protect my mind. You see, Jesus talked about my mind, that I should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, put my mind on the things of God, and the rest of the things will take care of themselves. Paul says, whatever things are true, noble, honest, think on these things, put your mind on them. Or he writes in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, a verse that I've always found challenging. Bring every thought captive in obedience to Christ. And I confess, when I think of that verse normally, I think of, you know, immoral thoughts that sometimes come into our mind. Uh, hurtful thoughts that come into our mind. We all have them. And we want to bring them captive to Christ. But he also applies, I'm sure, to those paralyzing thoughts. The way the devil will get into our minds and make us think there is no hope. He'll paralyze us from action. So in my mind, conflict expected. Secondly, in their mob, I'm not just being alliterative here, mob is the right word. You see in verse 2? There are two groups in verse 2. There's the conspiracy of the wicked. They are the clever people who make the bullets. And there's a noisy crowd of evildoers. They're just the renter mob who only know a bit about what they're doing, but they do it. Oh yes, those revolutionary imams who teach Muslim youngsters that to kill themselves and others will get them special place in heaven. They're the people who are the conspiracy of the wicked. That's awful. And the poor kids who believe them and blow themselves up. They're the noisy crowd of evildoers. That's the world we live in. But we don't just live in that sort of world, do we? We live in a world where for young people to stand for Christian purity and truth. It's hard. Did you spot in the press the other day that children 
who wore chastity rings were being uh, told to take them off. These rings that say that they're gonna, they remain pure, they will remain virgin, they will not. Uh, but you see, that's making them stand out as different, so get rid of them. The mob. It's true, that's why we read 2 Corinthians 11. That passage which reminds us that there are false apostles, there are deceitful workmen, because Satan dressed himself up as an angel of light. And we're just living in, in a little world of our own if we don't believe that's happening around us. Those who deny the gospel, those who oppose gospel ministry. I said at 9.15, and I, I say it without any apology, I... On one occasion I had to go and speak, at a, give a talk at a working men's club in Barnsley, part of a mission. And that was quite a thing. I was a turn, would you believe it? I was a turn for 15 minutes. And I had to stand there and explain the gospel to men standing with beer tankards and uh, all the rest. Smoke-filled room, it was in those days. Didn't bother about stopping smoking. That was where I had to present the gospel. I found that less demanding than standing up for five minutes at the Dawson Synod to defend the gospel. I had more opposition in the Dawson Synod than I got in the working men's club in Barnsley. I felt the enemy threatening me. Okay, you might say, all sorts of psychological reasons. No, that's not the answer. That there is an opposition to the gospel that comes in these places and it is harder to bear because it ought not to be. In my mind, in their mob. And let's face it, we live in a world where mobs, where the, the crowd being activated is very, very common and very, very dangerous. In my mind, in their mob, in their message. You see in verse 3, they sharpen their tongues. One of the commentaries I, I looked at suggested that uh, this might be sort of magic, you know, the, the sort of abracadabra, using, saying kind of subtle magic words that are like deadly arrows. I think not. We get too complicated. I think it's just the psalmist knew all too well that the most powerful weapon for good in it is the tongue. James knows it in the New Testament. Jesus says, by your words you will be justified. By your words you will be condemned. The Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is always saying it. Hear these words from Proverbs 16, verse 27. A scoundrel plots evil. His speech is like a scorching fire. A perverse man stirs up dissension. And a gossip separates close friends. Do you get them all? Scorching fire. Dissension. Gossip. Uh, incidentally, just before we move on, it ought never to be true of Christian people that we are using those weapons for ill. Not unknown for Christians to enjoy gossip. We all of it know it in our hearts. Because of the evil, they are sharpening their tongues. This is the weapon they will use. Words that murder. I discovered recently that in, in itinerant ministry, what you discover is that certain books have the flavour of the month. I said at 9.15, one of my little asides, I hope the Song of Solomon never becomes the flavour of the month because I never really do understand that book. Uh, but uh, the flavour of the month uh, recently has been Nehemiah. Why we're all doing Nehemiah, I do not know. But I get invited, please do a series on Nehemiah. Well, I guess you know the story of Nehemiah well enough to know that they were building the wall. And the opposition got in, the enemy was there. And the enemy was very subtle. What was the greatest danger when Nehemiah tried to build the wall? 
Not when they brought their weapons, their arrows and so on, no. Uh, not when these people sought, as it were, to, uh, to get the king against them. Oh, no, no. The greatest danger, were two dangers. One, when they tried to join in. When they said to Nehemiah, oh, we, we'll, we'll help you. Uh, not believing the same message. Not with the same intent in mind, hoping to spoil it. We'll join you. And Nehemiah was much too strong for that kind of thing. So the other good, clever weapon was with their tongues. They spread innuendos. They let it be known that Nehemiah was making himself a king. They had, one of the things we're used to nowadays, the leak, the secret leak, a letter that was open so that anybody could read it. And Nehemiah, you see, this is what he is. He's trying to make himself a king. And Nehemiah could say to them, you're wasting your time. You, this is not true. You've just made it up out of your own head, says Nehemiah 6, 8. That needs integrity. But do you see the danger? The danger was that they used weapons. The weapons of taunt. The weapon of innuendo. The danger of the tongue. And how easily we get frightened by it. We live in a world where people's tongues are against the gospel. In their, mes in their message... Third, fourthly, in their method. There in verse 4, they shoot from ambush at the innocent man. They shoot at him suddenly without fear. Here the people, they do it in an underhand way. They're in ambush. They're trying to stop. And you see, Christians should be different. Paul would always say, and it came out in 2 Corinthians 11, that very moving passage. I'm always intrigued. I, I, I can't help saying it. I'm always intrigued by people who think Paul was a hard man. I know why they think that, because he dared to have, some, to have some convictions. But he wasn't. He was a most soft, vulnerable man. Did you read all that? How he longed to see them being one to Christ. How he cared deeply. He would express all his problems. He opened his heart to them. And what he was concerned about, you see, was he could say that unlike these super apostles, these people who had uh, the special message, he was always open. 2 Corinthians 4, he, never, he tells us all that we should never be underhand, that we should set forth the truth plainly. And their method was so different. Paul can write elsewhere, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. So we need to be clever. We need to be clear that there is always that opposition which will underhand try to undermine all that evangelical Christians have stood for, all the Church of England basically stands for, want to undermine it by bringing in another gospel. So you need to pray for Paul as he makes his stand. And all of us who seek to stand for evangelical truth in the world in which we live. I don't know whether you watch Richard Dawkins and all his attempts to try to discredit any, anybody who believes the Christian faith, make us all we're all thick, apparently, if we're Christians. Uh, Richard Dawkins and, and, and uh, Alistair McGrath had an open debate in Oxford, which was televised, but Mr. Dawkins wouldn't allow it to be on television, on public television. He wasn't prepared to have any opposition uh, publicly given because his kind of atheism doesn't stand at all. And our greater danger doesn't come from that kind of open atheism. Alistair McGrath's written a book called The Twilight of Atheism quite right. As a, as a kind of philosophy, it's dying. But practical godlessness is rampant. I'm not worried about the atheist who says he don't believe. I am very concerned about people who say they believe in God, but live as if they didn't. They 
shoot from their ambush. If I believe in God, then I will stand in awe of his judgment. I will stand obedient to his truth. And I shall fear what will happen if I don't. In their method, and finally in their mind. We start with our mind, in our mind, in their, my mind, in their mob, in their message, in their method. Now in their mind, here's the mental side of the godless society in verses 5 and 6. You see, they say, well, we'll encourage each other. Who will see us? So they plot injustice. We've devised a perfect plan. There's no God. This is practical godlessness. And you see, the tragedy is, it seems like they're right. Is there really a God? If God was around, would all these terrible things be happening in our world? I was intrigued by the fact that when men do awful, wicked things from which people suffer, some people say, why didn't God stop it? God doesn't allow us to be the fruit of our evil schemes ever to do evil things to evil people. But you see, there are those who want to say, well, is God really at work? And then you suddenly find in verse 7, which should suddenly lift you up, but God. For those of you who are experts, who is it you, you surf the net, whatever that strange word means, but those who do something with the internet, you'll, I'm sure you can chase your way through these, uh, the, these biblical words and find, but God. Put it in and see how often you get but God in the Bible. It's a, a constant theme. You build up the evil and then you say, but God. And so we've seen uh, conflict expected, exposed, and now we're going to see confidence engendered. But you'll only understand the end of Psalm 34 if you understand the first six verses. If you, first eight verses, six verses. If you actually think, this is not relevant to our world. There aren't any enemies to the gospel. We're all nice, kind people today. The church is beautiful. Then I'm afraid the but God is rather pointless. But let's assume you do believe it. Will you notice how the first half of the psalm has an echo in the second? Just notice it. It talks in verse, uh, verse 3 about arrows. They aim their words like deadly arrows. And verse 7, the arrows come back. God will shoot them with arrows. They are sudden in verse 4. They suddenly attack, verse 4. And verse 7, suddenly they'll be struck down. The tongue is their weapon in verse 3. And in verse 8, he will turn their own tongues against them. I've preached in Australia a couple of times. When you go to Australia, they always give you a boomerang as a, as a present. And when we came back with our boomerang, our kids were quite young, we thought we'd try see if it worked. And uh, from the garden of Chorley Drive, uh, the kids tried the boomerang. It virtually broke the window at number four, but it never really returned home again. And the boomerang went. The boomerang boomed. Uh, but it, didn't, it doesn't seem to work in our climate. So if you know how to work a boomerang, do, do tell me. But here's a kind of boomerang opposite, isn't it? This is the boomerang. They send out their arrows and they come back. The Bible's got a great deal to say about judgment working that way. Be sure your sin will find you out. Incidentally, I do hope before our Australian colleague comes in the new year, we've won one or two games in the Ashes. Otherwise, life will be difficult. So we must sort of, we can't pray for it, can we really? No, I can't do that. But we might hope that uh, before uh, Andrew comes. Uh, perhaps he's not interested in cricket after all. Uh, we've won something. We haven't started very well yesterday. 
But I'm in good heart. Sheffield Wednesday won yesterday, so I'm, I'm very good heart. We do better without managers, so we managed to, to win yesterday. All is well. And I made no reference to Leeds at 9.15. I was being very kind and gentle to Paul. Uh, but never mind. If you want to know how Leeds went on yesterday, ask Paul. He'd be very glad to tell you. Uh, well, here's, here's the, the boomerang. Here's the arrow coming back. Just notice how confidence can be engendered. Three simple things. God's method in judgment. God's message through judgment. God's ministry of joy. The method of judgment. There is this sense that God's wrath is at work in our world now. Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed. Ultimately sinful activity brings its own judgment. Oh sadly innocent people suffer as well. But it's, it's happening in the world. I remember reading as a young student a book called Christianity and History by Professor Butterfield. I was a student of history. And which he points out that if you study history in the long term, evil does not triumph. In the short term, it seems to. In the short term, the tyrant seems to win. In the long term, biblical principles do work out. God's method in judgment. For example, if you read uh, Jeremiah 31, which has within it, uh, again, this word about complaint comes in, and you get Jeremiah 31, all the solemn judgments of God, and yet in the very same chapter, the new covenant, the hope of a new promise. God works it out. So that at the cross, there was the greatest enmity activity Satan ever landed on the church, on the people of God. And there the victory was won. God's method in judgment. God's message through judgment, that truth comes out in verse 8b. All who see them will bring, will shake their heads in scorn. All mankind will fear. They will proclaim the works of God. Isaiah says the same in Isaiah 26 verse 9. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. But incidentally, it's only when Christian people, and especially those who speak in public, dare to speak about what's happening in the world, dare to, to stand up on biblical principles and speak about judgment and wrath and the reality of judgment, that people will learn what's happening. We have a commentary to make about the things in the world. We don't understand all that's happening in the world, but we do believe there is a God. And when Jesus was faced with a terrible, terrible disaster in his day, and he was asked to comment, were all these people were sinners? No. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you hear church leaders saying that kind of thing? And it's only when that we interpret it in the honest way, in scriptural way, that people will learn righteousness. We have a responsibility. And then it comes to God's ministry of joy. You see, all mankind will fear, that's fair, and we need to have a sense of awe, but let the righteous rejoice in the Lord, take refuge in him, let all the upright in heart praise him. And then you go on to Psalm 65, full of the joy of harvest. And the joy of verse 10 can only be known fully through the work of Jesus. Book 15, the story of joy in heaven over sinners repenting. That's where joy comes the scripture is quite straightforward. That because of what evil is doing, there is no peace for wicked. Do you know that phrase, there's no rest for the wicked? I hope you know it comes in scripture. 
Uh, one day, my wife and I, my wife was taking me, Mark was taking me to town. We came to a fair decision in early days of retirement, after a little bit of de deliberation, that going to town shopping was no good for me, and it, doing it together, and no good for Margaret. We agreed that we were both delighted that she went town shopping on her own, and I did something else. That was a mutual agreement very early on in retirement. It makes retirement possible. But occasionally, I'm dragged down to town for something, and I, we, were, we were going through... T.J. Hughes, always frightened to that place. We were going through T.J. Hughes and going up the escalator and Margaret was striding purposefully ahead uh, because she knew what she was going for. I was coming timidly, reluctantly behind and another lady rushed past me and rushing past me on the escalator, I don't know why people run up escalators but she did, she rushed past me and muttered, there's no rest for the wicked. And I said, Isaiah 57 verse 21. I, 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 I kind of which it is, Isaiah 57, verse 21. Now, I ought to have given a little testimony and a little word, but I'm afraid I, I thought I, I was slightly embarrassed that I shouldn't have said that. But it came out. Well, it is Isaiah 57. And what, what did this lady mean, chasing up the escalator? Well, she wasn't thinking of God's judgments in all the earth. I guess she was saying, like we all do, misusing scripture, life's tough, life's tough. She didn't think she was wicked, I'm sure, particularly. But the Bible actually says there is. No peace for the wicked. There's no joy in hell. There's no peace in hell. And there's no peace in this world if I turn my back on him. No, I can expect constantly to be in turmoil. If I depend upon my goodness to get me to heaven, there's no peace. If I believe that somehow it'll all work out well in the end, whatever we do in the church, there's no peace. We're, we've reached crucial, crucial days. But God. But you see there is, for the people of God, eternal peace and hope. And you see that's why in a minute, in a minute or two we shall sing uh, Amazing Grace. Because you see, at the cross, when the enemies did their worst, when Satan, the conspiracy of wicked, working through the mob, and the mob crying on that day of crucifixion, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That's the mob shouted. They'd shouted a few days before, some of them, Hosanna, Hosanna. They can soon change their mind because wicked people will torment them so to do. But at that moment, because Christ was dying on the cross, there is hope, there is grace. And all of us who are by nature not righteous become righteous in him. And because of what he did on the cross, we can sing, the Lord has promised good to me his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And if I may say, John Newton, even longer than that, right on into eternity. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that in a world where there is opposition, to the gospel where even sometimes in the church there's opposition to that gospel we want to proclaim keep us faithful help us to rest in the assurance of the security of the gospel thank you that Jesus endured not just physical agony but endured all the taunts of wicked people and came through victoriously to give us hope we just pause to pray for some for whom these things are desperately relevant, 
who go through persecution and opposition and hatred. Dear Lord, we pray for them, but for ourselves, save us from complacency. From cowardice, defend us. From lethargy, awake. And grant, Lord, that in the light of your amazing grace, we may live and work to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.